And let's pray. Father, make me a servant of your word, an ambassador of your message as we open up the letter to the Romans. Help us all to hear its importance and its goodness and to be shaped by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in around 57 AD, Paul of Tarsus, the driven, tough, church-planting missionary apostle with a big heart, sent a letter. He sent it from Corinth in Greece. A scribe named Tertius made the fair copy, and Phoebe, a deacon of the church in the port city of Cancraea, carried the letter from Corinth, from Cancraea, their kind of twin cities, to the Christians in Rome. Rome, the great centre of the empire. Rome, the centre of the known world, really, certainly the Mediterranean world. Paul had never visited the Christians in Rome, but he wanted to. And in preparation for this visit, he wanted to forge a connection with those Christians in that great city. And the letter that we have as the book of Romans in our New Testament is Paul's attempt to connect to the Christians in Rome. It's the longest of the New Testament letters written by Paul, and it is therefore the first of the letters in our collection of Paul's letters in the New Testament. And it's kind of well-placed first, because it's not just the longest, but it contains the longest essay, if you like, the longest kind of connected, unfolding account of Christian belief that's in the New Testament. Perhaps uh, Hebrews would come in next as a connected, unfolding account of Christian belief about Jesus, but Romans is the longest and comes the first in the collection. And we're about to tackle over the next several weeks, not the whole thing, not all 16 chapters, but chapters 1 to 5, which is the first major section of this letter. Paul's letter to the Romans was a gift to them. He wanted to give them something that kind of stood in for him before he could get there in person. But it was more than just Paul's gift to those people in that city at that time. It was God's gift to his church throughout the ages. For Jesus Christ did make Paul his servant, his apostle, his missionary, his ambassador, his herald, his delegate. And as such, Paul has made a gift to the ages, a gift to us. God has made Paul's letter a a light, a fire, a revolution in really thousands and thousands of lives. Some lives very famous. St. Augustine, the monk Martin Luther who sparked the Reformation, the reformer John Wesley who went around and founded what became the evangelical movement within the Anglican Church. These people had consequential, transforming encounters with the message of God they found in the book of Romans. And not just the famous people, many ordinary, unknown to you and I, Christians have found in the book of Romans a light, a fire, 
a revolution for them and their relationship with God. While the Gospels tell the story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, Romans expounds the reasons for, the meaning of, the consequences and implications of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. It expounds all these for the whole of humanity. It's kind of a, got a cosmic scale to it. But it also has a very personal dimension, a very personal address. It addresses each of us in our mortal condition. And so may Romans be God's gift to you. We embark upon it today. I hope you will be with us um, for the journey, that this isn't your only time to join with us here at St Edmund's and think on the letter to the Romans. Today I have really one aim, which is to introduce Paul and the gospel that he is eager to preach. Uh, Paul is really going to introduce himself, and I'm going to go along with that. I'll make kind of five points, the first of which is that Paul was all about the gospel of Jesus. Paul is one of the most focused mission-oriented people you are ever likely to encounter. This is evident from his first words of self-introduction. He knows who he is. He is very focused on what his life is about. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Uh, that phrase, a servant of Christ Jesus, we could translate a slave of Christ Jesus. It was the same word. Paul, as he saw it, was a slave, a bondsman. He was not free. He was not self-determining, but he was under a master whom he served. And this master had made him a messenger. Jesus Christ had sent him as an apostle. An apostle is a sent one a delegate or an ambassador, if you like, someone who could speak for and act for another. And Jesus had given Paul the apostle the gospel of God to deliver. Now, gospel, a very kind of Christian and religious word, just means good news, glad tidings, a message usually of consequence, something substantial, something was going to change things. And the gospel of God then is good news of consequence from God. So fundamentally, Paul does not have a philosophy to teach and model. He doesn't fundamentally have a law from God to kind of lay out and enforce. He doesn't have a technique or a spiritual practice to share. He doesn't have a vision to unveil. He has news to broadcast so there is Paul. Paul is all about the gospel of God. Let's focus a little bit more on this news that he was given to share, to broadcast. This news did not come from nowhere. There's the second point. This news, this gospel, did not come from nowhere. Verse 2, it is the gospel that he, that is God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his Son. Jesus' life had a context. The history of 
the people of Israel. And the promises of God made during that history found in the Old Testament. This is crucial for understanding Jesus. He comes in answer to expectations as the fulfilment of promises. For the Jewish people held on to certain promises of God that gave them certain hopes and expectations that God would revive the fallen fortunes of the royal house of David. That a son of David, a descendant of David, would ascend to the seat of power and would rule with God's backing and blessing. Uh, we might turn to an Old Testament passage like Isaiah 11, 1 to 2, to hear this hope expressed. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Right, who's Jesse, you say? Jesse was David's father. So David is from, if you like, the stump, of the, the, the trunk of Jesse. This has been cut down and reduced to a stump, but there's still hope. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, someone who is in the same family line. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. There's just one little taste of the expectation in the Old Testament of a coming one who will rule on David's throne. We could also talk talk about 2 Samuel 7 or Psalm 2 or Ezekiel 37 or on and on and on. We could go. But the news that Paul had about Jesus did not come from nowhere. And in fact, what the news was, was, and here's my third point, (coughs) the news that Paul had to announce was that this shoot had come up from the stump of Jesse. The gospel of God is regarding, as we read in the end of verse 3, his son, God's son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And there are two things here. Firstly, David's Davidic descent. As to his earthly life, he was a descendant of David. And secondly, his resurrection. This was something genuinely new and unexpected about Jesus that was there in the Old Testament, but not everybody kind of made the connection, saw that this was part of what it would mean for the Messiah, the Christ, the coming King to come, that God would raise him from the dead. But for Paul, Jesus' resurrection is crucial to fulfilling the promises and expectations of the Old Testament. Paul uh, has the same thing to say about Jesus in, say, Acts 13. From David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus as he promised. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. This combination of Davidic descent and resurrection also appears in very briefly in 2 Timothy 2.8, where Paul writes, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. This is the news I have to announce about this one, his descent from David, his resurrection from the dead. The gospel of God is the announcement that the promises of God to empower a king 
in the line of David are fulfilled in Jesus as evidenced by his resurrection from the dead. He is the Christ, the anointed one, the chosen of God to reign over his kingdom of peace and flourishing. Now, Jesus Christ is a great and deep subject. He is an unexpected kind of king, an unexpected kind of Christ. And this is very clear as we read the Gospels. He has a very non-standard kind of reign. He does not exercise power in any earthly way. For his great act was to die. To die quite deliberately for us. Because we are sinners who need a sacrifice of atonement and a reconciliation to God. Romans 1 to 5 and beyond is a great account of, in many ways, what lies at the heart of it is the death that Jesus died and why it was necessary and what it achieved. And so we are going to go there. We are going to hear from Paul all these things. Why this death? What did it mean? What did it matter? What did it achieve? Stay tuned. But for now, I want to bring out a third thing, that one of the, a uh, fourth thing, sorry, one of the features of the reign of Jesus that is here in Romans 1 is that it is a universal reign. Paul and all the first Christians were Jews, and Jews understand themselves to be set apart from all other nations. They call them the Gentiles, or Hebrew, the Goyim, or in Greek, just the word that's translated there, Gentiles, just means the nations, everyone else, everyone who's not a Jew. We are chosen by God, not because we earned it or deserved it, but by his grace, we are a chosen and priestly nation. And yet Paul and the first Christians came to believe that God was doing a new thing. He was uniting Jew and Gentile into something new, the church of Jesus Christ, to which both Jew and Gentile belong. And this reaching out to the Gentiles, to the nations, was Paul's special task, his department. Verse 5, through him, that is through Jesus, we, when Paul says we, he's talking about I, so what they call an epistolary we, um, we receive grace and apostleship. To call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul's desire to come to Rome and to connect with and share the gospel in Rome is connected to his obligation to share the gospel with all nations. And so in verse 13, when he talks about this, he talks about, you know, wanting to have a harvest and being a debtor. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the other Gentiles, among the other nations. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and non-Greeks, to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. This Jesus is for everybody. Everyone from, you know, Greek, barbarian, from the wise to the foolish and everyone in between. 
And I want to tell this gospel to everyone. And why? Why does Paul wish to proclaim this universal reign? What does he hope to see in people's lives? The fifth point I want to make is that the harvest that Paul wished the gospel to produce was what he calls the obedience of faith. Or as it's translated in this passage, the obedience that comes from faith. For if we have a gospel, if we have an announcement, news, a proclamation, it's something we respond to or we don't. And at the most basic level, we believe it or not. We believe it or we disbelieve it. News that you don't believe is news you will ignore or resist. News that you do believe will shape your outlook and your action. If it is true that Jesus was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, then what does that mean? How might it shape your outlook and your action? One fundamental response is to regard Jesus Christ as, indeed, Son of God in power. That is, as Lord, as exalted to the right hand of God, as having authority, indeed, divine authority. Divine authority to call for our obedience. And thus, the response, if we believe this is true, is to offer Jesus Christ the obedience of faith, the obedience that comes from faith, from believing that indeed he is risen and does reign at God's right hand. Now, obedience is something that it might seem we in our 21st century Australian context are trained, in fact, not to give. We are often encouraged to question, to think for ourselves, to make up our own minds, to go our own way, to do our own thing, to critique the choices that are on offer, to stand up for our rights and not be told what to do. And on that view, obedience is not obviously a virtue. In fact, it could be seen as quite a vice, something bad, something you should not do. Yet still, we are, in fact, an incredibly obedient and compliant people as well. We are encouraged to trust the experts and to act accordingly. And so, just to give some current examples, we are told or encouraged to wear a mask, to stay at home if we are unwell, to get vaccinated, and we do so. We're encouraged to recycle, to switch to renewables, to buy our carbon offsets. Because we trust the experts, we offer them gladly, in many cases, in most cases, our obedience, our conformity, our cooperation. For, you see, if authority is worthy, if it's truthful and wise, then offering your obedience is an equally worthy act. It is good and wise. It's not a vice to obey worthy authority. It's a virtue to offer your obedience. And Paul wishes to tell the news of Jesus in a way that brings out the worthiness of Jesus Christ, that he is true and good and wise and on our side and for us and loving and with our best interests at heart, he exercises his 
authority. And hence it is worthy of us, it is sane and wise and good of us to offer him our obedience. To trust his word, to answer his call, to belong to him. We received grace and apostleship, writes Paul, to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. So let me sum up where we've come to. Firstly, Paul, the writer of our letter, is all about the gospel of Jesus. Secondly, this gospel didn't come from nowhere, but fulfills Old Testament promises about a son of God who is to come. Thirdly, the gospel is that Jesus is that son of David, Jesus of Nazareth. He is not just the son of David, but the son of God in power, raised from the dead and identified by God to us through that resurrection. And that his reign, fourthly, is universal. He lives not just for the benefit of the Jews, whom David himself ruled over, but for the benefit of all, Jesus exercises his reign. And fifthly, the gospel calls for the obedience to Christ that comes from faith in Christ, faith in the goodness, the worthiness of Jesus to be the Lord, to be our Lord. And so here we stand on the threshold, ready to listen to the gift that Paul gave the Romans, which is also the gift of God to us. The greeting goes like this in verse 7. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And I suspect if Paul was writing at all with us in mind, he would say to all in Wembley who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. These are not just pretty words. They express what Paul passionately believes is the message of the gospel. It is news of the love of God, even for the ungodly. It is a call for all and sundry to be his holy people. It is grace and peace from God. To you and I. The world is full of news. Plenty of it is fake or mistaken. Plenty of it is bad or trivial. Let's not forget. Let's not overlook or fail to grasp this good news. This gospel. And let's pray that it has a harvest among us too. Do pray with me. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your servant Paul and for the gospel that you gave him to proclaim, the gospel about the son whom you sent to live amongst us, descended from David, risen from the dead, Jesus Christ, the one whom you have raised up and made the Lord and who lives for the benefit of all. And so, Lord, as we contemplate that Jesus Christ and Paul's message about him, we pray that you would evoke in us 
the obedience of faith, that we might be enabled by your grace and your spirit to believe this news, to see it in its truth and goodness and to offer to Jesus freely and happily our allegiance, our loyalty, our trust, our obedience. We do pray that this would be a great blessing to each one of us and it would be our great joy to know him. We pray in his name. Amen.